0: I want to tell you how, again, I am genuinely excited about this brief series. Now, we started this series last week, and it's just three weeks, and it's three simple weeks in which we're looking at some very difficult things. And we made this statement last week that needs to guide us throughout all three of these weeks. If we don't think biblically about sin, we won't relate rightly to God. If we don't think biblically about sin, we won't relate rightly to God. Meaning this, that our minds have to be driven by what it is that the scriptures have to say. And let me tell you what the temptation is going to be in particular this week. The temptation is going to be, but hey, preacher man, dude, thanks for sharing. Thanks for your efforts. That doesn't make sense, though. In other words, if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. Neither would I. If I were God, I assure you, I would not do the things that God has done. I would not go about life the way that God has gone about constructing life. But I want to quote to you a gentleman, um, uh, Francis Chan, who was being interviewed on CNN several years ago, and he made this statement, and I latched onto it and went, thank you, Francis, for representing Christians well in the public sphere. It was a very difficult subject, very difficult topic there, and and the gentleman thought he had Francis pinned into a corner, and he said, but doesn't that make God either impotent or incompetent? And he says, not at all. He says, what I can tell you is this, if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way, but I am not God, and therefore, I don't get to choose how God does it. Now that is a non-satisfying answer to someone who does not have a spiritual mind. But for us, we're gonna end here today because the scriptures are gonna take us there in the end. There are Romans in chapter nine. But I want us to start it here and then we'll end it the same way. You and I are not God. And therefore God gets to determine how he is going to function. You don't have to like it, but just because you like it doesn't mean you can deny it. In the end, there's going to be great comfort for us. I really believe that. But last week, we started out with the question uh, that we were asking. We've been uh, in this series, three questions to ask. First of all, how did our world get broken? I don't think it took any of us long to to acknowledge that we live in a broken world. The second question, which we'll hit today, is why does God not fix our broken world now? And then next week, remember, we're going to celebrate. We're going to use um, as just one illustration that's gonna go throughout the uh, service, um, the the most recent decision with Roe v. Wade, and uh, celebrate and, and say, well, what now should God's people do about a broken world? So today, why does God not fix our broken world? If you have never asked this question, then you probably don't have a whole lot of curiosity about life, period. Why does God not fix the world that we live in right now? Because we know from the scriptures, we're taught that when Jesus returns, everything is going to be renewed, restored. Jesus is going to create a new world. Now, I believe he's going to take this existing world and renew this existing world. I don't think he's going to send a divine comet and it's going to blow us all up to smithereens. I think what's going to happen is he's going to come down and somehow in space and time. Every effect of sin is going to be removed from this particular world and we're going to have a new world in that sense, heavens and a new earth. Why does God not do that now if his plan is to do that in the future? Now, if God truly is all-powerful and can do whatever he pleases outside of sin, if God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, and whenever he wants, then why in the world would God not do it now? Let me ask you this. You have a child, hypothetically. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe you're not married. Et cetera. Right now, imagine that you have a child and that child was born with a significant physical deformity. So much so that it caused great harm in not just their physical body, but also in their emotional psyche as they went about life, etc. And you knew that there was a doctor and that doctor could perform a surgery that would solve every one of those physical ailments, and you saw the damage that was taking place in this child as that child is now six and seven years old, and just knowing that if that was fixed, there'd be a whole lot of things that would go in a different direction for your child. Would you as a parent then say, you know what, let's hold off on this surgery. Let's hold off until our child gets into his 60s and then we'll perform this surgery that might have a tremendous impact on his life. Would you consider yourself to be a loving, kind, gracious, good parent? All of us in here would say, of course we wouldn't think that. That was an illustration I was given about eight years ago from a gentleman as we were walking through an investigation into the claims of Christ. He brought that exact illustration. I asked him if I could use it in the future. He said, absolutely. I said, I like what you're doing. I like the way that you're thinking. Here's the problem what you have done has just taken out the most important factor in all of this. So you have given a wonderful, helpful, insightful illustration that helps us connect emotionally with the subject matter. But here's the problem. You have given an illustration in which you've given our particular view of the situation. I wanna tell you what my seminary professor said for me. We all have a view. God has view. We have a view. God has view. And that's why the illustration can't be applied. I understand it at an emotional level, but we are not God. Last week, we gave a couple of different examples. We talked about wars. We talked about some misconduct that's taking place in churches. We talked about school shootings. How can we say that God is a good and kind and benevolent God if he doesn't bring a halt to all that stuff right now? This series is about how we should think. I want to give you the single answer to why God does not fix our broken world now. And if you're a note taker, you'll want to take this down. Here is the reason why God does not fix it all now. I don't know. (laughs) And anybody who tries to claim to you they have the answer for this just doesn't know how to think biblically. I don't know why God does not fix it all right now because God can make any system that he wants to make And again, if I were him, the system I would make would be to eradicate sin and all of its effects right now. But God chooses not to do that. And I'm not sure exactly what that reason is. What I'm going to give to you are some good things that come out of it. But I can't tell you why, because he's the one that created the system. So in your meeting with someone who has a real struggle with God, don't feel the pressure to try to answer this question. Just say this, I don't know. And if I were God, I would do it differently, but I'm not God. And therefore, I can't do it differently. Now, I want to give us what may be the most difficult thought to wrap our minds around this morning. We'll spend the rest of the sermon fleshing this out. Although we don't know the reason why God does not choose to remove sin and all of its effects right now to fix the broken world that we live in, here's one thing that we do know according to the Scriptures. And that is that somehow or another, even in evil itself, in suffering itself, in death and decay, in all of the ways in which the world is broken before us, in that God is glorified. And God is glorified in such a manner that we would not see this aspect of his glory if we did not live in a broken world. Would we know what mercy is if we did not see things that were broken? Would we know what compassion is if we did not see things that were broken? That's not the reason God could have created us in such a way that we would have seen all of that without it. I'm just telling you some of the things that come about. Now listen, Romans 8, 28 says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When God says all things work together for good, he does not mean most things. He means all things. Judith and I have a very, very, very dear friend. And this is a woman who is now um, older in life, but while she was younger, she um, was attacked, and uh, the worst of, of life happened to her during that. What she would tell you to this day right here is that never has she experienced the greatness of God even in that particular moment because God was with her in a way that she had never experienced before. She's been able to minister to people since then who have gone through the same thing. Would she want that exact same act to happen again? No, she doesn't want sin to happen. What she will tell you is she is grateful for all that God has done as a result of that all things work together for good for those who are called according to, the, to his purpose." In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is, uh, has been raised to prominence there in Egypt. And you remember the story, he was sold by his brothers into slavery earlier on. So again, this is one of the first human trafficking examples that we see um, in, our, in, our, in the Bible's uh, history. And so he's sold by his brothers and, uh, and, and they came back and told their father that uh, he was dead uh, they, they created this whole elaborate plan in order to this. But God raised him up while he was there. He was sometimes forgotten, and he wondered, has God remembered me? And, and so God raised him to, to power in a couple of different ways. And, and he finally gets to the end, and he's the second highest in command. And his brothers are coming to him. And his brothers are coming because they're hungry. There's a famine in the land. And they're coming to, to beg whoever this person is that's in charge to beg for some food and help. And he recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him. Now, he certainly would have looked very different than he was much younger in life, but he probably also had a different accent now than he did when he was younger. He recognizes them, and something gets stirred in his heart. Now, if you were sold into human trafficking and forgotten, and you finally made it to where you were in a place of prominence and power, and you had a chance to confront the very people who had sold you, who thought so little about you, that that that's how would you respond to them? Would your first response be, I cannot wait to show them grace and compassion and mercy? Or would you think to yourself, I am in power, and they are not. They have a need, and I have the means by which to do whatever I want to to them. sees them and scriptures actually tell us that he has to go out of the room and he is weeping i think on this side of his face he's remembering all the pain and hardship in his life on this side of his face he's overwhelmed with compassion for his family it is a god thing that happens to him he then looks at them reveals himself to them and they have sheer terror They're saying, uh, what is he going to do now? All of us would have asked that same question. Here's what he says. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That great thing that happened for the world would not have happened had this Younger kid, not been sold into slavery. Just one more passage from Proverbs chapter 16. It says this, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Here's what we cannot do. We cannot get God, quote unquote, off of the hook. When it comes to, you know what, God just steps back and, and he, poor guy, he just can't really do anything because all this evil is going to happen in the world. And, and of course, he has nothing to do with it. And of course, we believe God is not the author of evil. But, but, but it's another thing to say, you know, poor God, he just can't stop it. But by my goodness, he's going to do something good in the end with it. God is actually foreordaining everything that comes to pass. God is working throughout human history. Even evil itself, he is using. It is under his sovereign control. He is shaping, he is molding, he is using it in order to bring about the greatest glory for himself and the greatest good for man. Craig Beale, a great theologian, said this, we must distinguish between God bringing good from evil and God doing evil to produce good. Probably the most powerful statement that I've ever heard in my life came from a friend of Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know her story. She was a teenager. She dove into a pool. When she dove down, she broke her neck. As she came out, her life was, of course, spared. She then had an opportunity to meet not long after returning home from the hospital with an individual who had made a deal. If, If you will provide the food, I'll provide maybe hopefully some level of answers for why you're in this condition. A quote from her as she tells the story. That night, Steve leaned across the family table and said, God put you in that chair, Johnny. I don't know why, but if you will trust him instead of fighting him, you will find out why. If not in this life, then in the next. He let you break your neck, and perhaps I'm here to help you discover at least a few reasons why. Steve paused and then summed it up with 10 words that would change my life God permits what He hates to accomplish what He loves. The sentence hit me like a brick. Its simplicity made it sound trite, but it nevertheless enticed me uh, like an enigmatic riddle. It seemed to hold some deep and mysterious truth that piqued my fascination. Tell me more, I said. I want to hear more about that. I was hooked. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Romans chapter 9. Now, Romans chapter 9, this part right here is going to be a diatribe. A diatribe is simply a dialogue with imaginary questioners in which there can be questions that are asked, statements that are made, objections that are raised. But here's what you need to understand about a diatribe. A diatribe is intentionally written to elicit an emotional response from the reader. So in other words, while we're reading this information, what should be happening is we should be connecting emotionally with what's going on in our objections uh, as well. In there So it's always designed uh, to do that. Now, Romans chapter nine is not an isolated passage in the book. Paul in this book of Romans is trying to get across how it is that God goes about justifying man or making man right with God and he's writing to a church in which they had had Jewish people that were part of it. They were kicked out of the church. They came back into the church. And so there's conflict amongst the Jews and amongst the Gentiles. And so the question is, hey, all the law that we had, what role does that play in our life? And Paul's trying to say, the law was never about justifying you, making you right with God. That's never been the case going all the way back to Abraham. And, And they're confused over this. So he spends the book of Romans trying to talk about how salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now come the questions from the people. And the people are now asking, well, then did God's word fail with us? Is God unjust with us? And so here's what he writes, if you would, in honor of God's word, stand as we begin reading in verse 14 of Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> So then he has mercy on whom he ever wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You may be seated. Now what in the world is Paul doing in Romans 9? If we're going to understand this section right here, we've got to understand what he's doing in chapters 9 through 11. He's talking about Israel's unbelief. And he's putting together a whole argument. So don't take this out of context and alone. This belongs in the entire section right here. But I think what Paul is trying to get across to his Jewish audience is this. I know for a long time you guys thought it was just about you. We thought it was just about us. We thought that we had a special pipeline to God because of our ethnicity, because of our race. But Paul is telling them it has never been about ethnicity. It has never been about race. It's been about this group called spiritual Israel. He says not all of Israel was Israel. What he means is this. Not every person who was born into a Jewish home was going to be a believer. Not every person who was born into a Christian home is going to be a Christian. You've heard this statement before. It's a very good one. It lacks an emotional part of the equation, but it's a very good, simple illustration. Just because you stand in a garage, you are not a car. What makes a Christian a Christian? A Christian is a Christian, the one who has surrendered the controls of their life and given up all hope in and of themselves to make themselves right with God. All of their hope is given over wholly and exclusively to the person of Jesus, believing that he and he alone has done everything that was necessary to, re- to fulfill all of the requirements of God. In other words, he has lived the life that we could not live. He then has, re- has done everything that was necessary to receive the full wrath of God, meaning he died the death that we should have died. And then he overcame death. He was raised again from the dead on the third day, and now he has overcome both the power and the penalty of sin. So our whole sin problem, what we talked about last week, has been overcome by one particular man. A Christian is a Christian who believes that one man did everything that was necessary to make us right with God. A Christian is not one who is born into a Christian home. A Christian is not one who just simply acknowledges, you know what? Jesus is awesome. In fact, uh, tons of respect for, uh, for that dude. The man upstairs uh, does things the right way. So I uh, got all kind of mad. I'm a fan of Jesus. That's not a Christian. That's just a fan of Jesus. A Christian is one who has surrendered their will over to the controls of God. Not I'm trying to add Jesus to my life, meaning I'm trying to surrender everything that I am, all that I have under him, so I can come rightly under his reign and rule. So Paul is talking about this. Not all of Israel was actually spiritual Israel. So what does he say in here? In verse 14, he's going to tell us that God is just. This is looking at the character of God. I love it in here. His his argument is really robust, isn't it? Verse 14 what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. That's his answer. Is God then unjust? No, he is not. Any other questions? Paul, how can you say that God is not unjust? All of this that you've told us before. And right before this, he gets to says, by the way, Jacob and Esau, twins, they were born. One of them God hated. One of them God loved even before they were born. It had nothing to do with what they were doing. It had nothing to do with what they would do in the future. How can you say God is not unjust when he says, one I'm going to take, one I'm going to reject? How can I say it? He says, let me give you an example. Look at verse 15, to Moses, I will have mercy. Look at verse 17. To Pharaoh, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In verse 15, he says that God is merciful. In verses 16 to 18, he tells us that God is Sovereign. He is just. He is merciful. He is sovereign. Now, Warren Wearsby, I think, says something that is profound and really insightful. God is holy and must punish sin, but God is loving and desires to save sinners. If everybody is saved, it would deny his holiness, but if everybody is lost, it would deny his love. I want you to wrap your minds around this. You don't have to like it, but you have to wrestle with this. If you think what I'm teaching is incorrect, then go and wrestle with the scriptures. You pray. You search scriptures, find out what it is you come to. God says this, I want to put some on display, raise them up. That term itself, raised up, means that I'm going to bring them or cause them to stand up. It means uh, to bring them in historical sense that they would be in a place where everybody can see and acknowledge and view. So God raises up Pharaoh for one purpose, simultaneously while raising up Moses for another purpose. And both of these things put on display the character of God. And if all we saw was one of these, we would not have a full understanding of who God is. God doesn't want that. God wants us to see both. Some do not understand the mercy of God, and all they see is this God of wrath. And God is a God of wrath. He hates sin. I do not mean he dislikes it a little bit. He detests it. He despises it. He punishes it. He pours out his wrath upon it. Sin is not just a little thing to God. We should all fear the holy wrath of God. If we do not fear that, we are fools. God is also merciful. And God has poured out all of his wrath on one particular person who can take the punishment on our behalf or it can remain on us. Which one of you in this room, which one of us would have said, you know what I want to do? I want to take on all of the punishment that everyone in the world deserves. Every crime that has been committed, I want to take on the wrath of all of those people. I want to die the death that they uh, should die. Whether it's the, the, the lashes, whatever it may be. How many of us would say, I'm going to do this for people who are, are not going to ever give themselves fully over to me in the same way that I love them? Paul says in Romans 5, yeah, by the way, I understand how hard this sounds because there's a lot of, for good people, yeah, I'd, I'd lay my life down. But for those who, who are mocking me, ridiculing which one of us would die for him while we were in that place? That's when Christ died. God's justice is seen. God's mercy is seen. When it says that God raises Pharaoh up, what does that mean? It does not mean that God created him all along in mind and saying, you know what, I'm going to cause him to do evil things. I'm going to force him to do evil things. I'm going to make it in such a manner that I can build up this like so that I can just destroy him. He has created everyone in his image. God has made them. And what he has done is he's raised I many, he's caused them to come to a place of prominence in world history. And then it says that he's gonna remove his hand of common grace and he's gonna let that person become as evil as they would become. 10 times in the book of Exodus, it tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? It means that God removes his hand of restraining grace and Pharaoh becomes who he's going to become without God's intervention. I've used this illustration before. One of my sons was fascinated with a fireplace. It had big rocks, et cetera, all that. But because of the area that we were living in, we just didn't have a whole lot of fires. And so we go to the mountains, he sees this fire, and he has fascinated eyes, huge, running towards this fire. And I am holding this child back. He has no idea what's about to happen to him. And so I'm holding him and I said, buddy, you don't want to touch that. And so I would let go and he would run over that, bring him back. He'd run, bring him back. Finally, he said, this kid needs to learn. So I let go of him and let him get up close to that fire. And guess what he did? Ah! And he comes running back to me. Now, I wasn't going to pour gasoline on his hand and send him into the fire. I was going to let him get burned a little bit though. My hand of restraining was removed and he did what was already in his heart. This is what it means when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God just says, all right, if this is what you want, this is what you're going to get. Pharaoh had hardened his heart in Israel. God raised him up, had him in a place of prominence so that the whole world could see what? According to this, they could see how God deals with sin. He is just, he is merciful, he is sovereign. Now, I don't know that we should make too big of a deal of this, but I think the difference between being just and, uh, and and mercy, the terms that are in here is this. One of these has to do with the outward action; the other has to do with the inward condition of the heart. He he uh, he is he acts justly because he is merciful. There, verses nineteen through twenty-three are going to tell us about the authority of God. We hear this objection, we say, oh my goodness, God is going to intentionally pull some off and he's gonna intentionally overlook others. Why would a God do that who has the capacity to say, why would he do that? Here's how Paul is going to answer the question. Verse uh, 19, you will say then, then why does he still find fault? Who, Who can resist his will, but who Are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? God does all things freely. Meaning he is under no obligation whatsoever to explain to us why he does what he does. And even if he were to explain it to us, do you think that we would even comprehend it? It would be like one of uh, 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 my children uh, in their early parts of life be like a, you know, a three-year-old walking up to a nuclear physicist and said, uh, hey, could you explain to me some of the intricacies of what it is that you do in nuclear physicsism?" <laughs> could he answer? Oh, sure. But how is a three-year-old mind going to comprehend what this person is dealing with? God could explain to us, but we'll never grasp it. We'll never fully understand it. Instead, what Paul does is he goes this route of here saying this, hey, by the way, um, do you really think that God owes you an explanation for this? See, here's the question that we have to answer when we come to to this section of the scriptures. When it comes to this this idea of why God does not eradicate all of the brokenness right now, fix it all. here's Here's the real question we have to ask. Am I willing to serve under a God who has revealed to me what he is like, or do I want to serve a God whom I make? Am I going to rest in the fact that I have been created in God's image, or do I want to strive to create my own God in my image? God does not go out of his way to explain to us why he does what he does. Job had this same dilemma with him. Job walks before God. He sits with him. He talks with him. He has a, a, a time. With God lets him for a while ask some questions. Habakkuk does the same thing. Habakkuk goes to God. He asks God. He probes God, etc. And in both of those cases, although he uses different terms, God basically says this, I'm God. He says it to Job this way. Hey, Job, got a question for you. Since you're questioning my integrity and my wisdom and my judgment and my goodness, I got a little question for you. Job, were you there when I created the foundations of the earth? Were you there to see how all of this is going to play out? Were you there when I made this? Were you there when I made that? Are you the one that calls out to the sun each morning, rise up? Are you the one who put the stars in their place? Tell me, Job, what role did you have in creating this universe? And when you tell me what role you had, then you can come and question me on what it is that I do. Now, there's a balance here because the psalmist gives us the freedom to come before God and to question, where are you? Why have you not come back? How long will you linger? We have the freedom to do that. But ultimately it comes down to this. I can question God as an outlet. But the minute I begin to demand that God meets all of my curiosity, I'm on dangerous ground. God does all things freely, tells us in verses 19 to 20. He quotes from Isaiah 29, as well as Isaiah 45, in which he's going to tell them, does the pot actually speak back to the potter? Now, keep in mind the way that they would use those pots up there. You would have some that were used for very great purposes. They were used for elaborate things, for for, for parties and great celebrations. And the others were used as a latrine. Does the potter not have the right to do whatever he wants to with the pot. Verses 21 to 23, he tells us that God does all things purposely. I just want to read to you what R.C. Sproul has to say. Is there anything wrong with God enduring sin? In other words, perhaps we should be raising this objection. Why does God tolerate Pharaoh and all like him for five minutes? Why does God allow a wicked person to continue to exist? That's the real theological question. The theological question is not why does God save some and overlook others. The real question is this. Why does God save any? Why does God do anything that is good? What do you believe you deserve? Do you believe you deserve an answer? Do you believe you deserve God to fix everything right now? Do you believe you deserve God to make your life the way that you want it to be? Or do you believe that you deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity? To experience nothing but his wrath and vengeance? Well, that is what we deserve. God has chosen to, in some Give them a different taste, a different view as to who he is. So he creates some, he raises them up, and he justly punishes getting exactly what it is that they deserve. And he has some who do not get what they deserve at all. They receive his love and his mercy. And the same God does them both. Why does he not fix our broken world completely now? Because somehow or another, in his divine wisdom, it brings him the greatest amount of glory at this moment. And if we are rightly relating to him underneath his authority, we'll be at peace with that. I don't think we'll ever like it, but we'll be at peace.